I would like first to make a couple of introductory remarks about the topic of the seminar and about its title. As part of the MA in the Anthropology of Dance, which we started 10 years ago at Roehampton, I ran a course entitled The Emergence of a Discipline, where in the first few weeks I engage with the history of the Anthropology of Dance, presenting its emergence as a distinct field of study in the late 1960s. I also discuss its relationship with the main field of anthropology and of other cognate disciplines such as ethnomusicology, dance ethnology, theatre anthropology, and so on. In one of the early lectures in the course, I look at individuals that have been somewhat overlooked. And one of my former students, Katrina Richter, wrote a very nice term paper Anthropology with an Agenda for Forgotten Dance Anthropologists, developing some of the ideas I presented in this course. And uh, the paper was later published in 2010 in Research in Dance Education. So this lecture that I give uh, as part of this course is constantly evolving. And this seminar today belongs in part to the research that is done with teaching rather than ref in mind. I do the other kind, too, of research. Um, the canonical narrative about the origin of the anthropology of dance goes somewhat like this. Gertrude Prokosz Kouraj laid the foundation stone in the field in 1960 with the publication of her article, Panorama of Dance Ethnology in Current Anthropology, where she declared that one had to regard dance ethnology, and I quote, not as a description or reproduction of a particular kind of dance, but as an approach toward and a method of eliciting the place of dance in human life, in a word, as a branch of anthropology. End of citation. It is largely to, due to this one sentence that has made Kouras for many the mother of dance ethnology and dance anthropology. Catherine Dunham and Zora Neale Hurston, the two women I will discuss now, are two of the overlooked individuals not appearing in this narrative. As I put it in the abstract that some of you may have read, for some years now, African-American anthropologists have tried to give Dunham the place within the history of American anthropology generally and the anthropology of dance specifically that they feel she is due. The latest offering in this attempt is a collection of essays published last year, edited by Elizabeth Chin, and which is called Catherine Dunham, Recovering an Anthropological Legacy, Choreographing Ethnographic Futures. The book came out of the advanced seminar series held at the School of Advanced Research in Santa Fe in the USA. As you probably know, each seminar consists of up to 10 scholars who meet at the school's campus for three to five days of intense discussion that according to its website, address critical and emerging issues in anthropology and related disciplines. Senses of Place, edited by Stephen Feld and Kenneth Keyes-Basso in 96, and Critical Anthropology Now, edited by George Marcus in 99, were other products of this series. Reading the book, I saw this picture. And with the picture, the commentary was, I quote, Dunham performing the cakewalk. The caption at the back of the photos read, the legs that put the kick into anthropology. 
Catherine Dunham Papers, Special Collection Research Centre, Southern Illinois University, Carbondale. Clearly quite an irresistible title for a paper, and that's why I changed the title from the moment I was invited to that. It is, however, not that straightforward. I went to the online archive and noted that the description for the photograph was caption on back, originally written in French and translated the legs that put a kick into anthropology. She's here again, her legs as long and lithe as ever, and, schol and scholarly old gentlemen are polishing up their pasny and hoping for another lecture. Catherine Dunham, the girl with a kick like a million volts, here she is doing the cakewalk, is paying a second visit to the West End, leading an American troupe of dancers. But Catherine, besides being a dancer, is a Bachelor of Arts and a Bachelor of Philosophy. She was invited to talk about Negro cults to the Royal Anthropological Institute. I kept wondering about this quote because the French, les jambes qui donnent un coup de pied à l'anthropologie, doesn't sound quite right. So I wrote to the archive to ask to the original French text and I received the following. So the first is the text that I just read and then the French text. La voici revenue, les jambes aussi longues et aussi fines que jamais. Catherine Dunham, la danseuse au coup de jambes comme un million de volts, fait sa seconde visite au West End de Londres, où on la voit ici en train de danser le cakewalk. Elle n'est pas seulement danseuse, elle est aussi licenciée en art et en philosophie, et on lui a demandé de faire une conférence sur les cultes nègres à la Société royale d'anthropologie. So, nothing about kicking anthropology, nothing about old gentlemen with pince-nez, And this image of the Pansonet sort of amused me as well, because I think, uh, it was, to me, it sounded much more like uh, the opera goers in Paris in 1848 than the anthropologists of a century later. But let's return to the caption. Has the archivist missed those sentences in his email to me? Who wrote the French caption? and who wrote the English translation. As I had asked about copyright, I was also told, this photograph is stamped on the back, copyright photo by Mirror Pick, Daily Mirror, Fetterlane, London, EC4. Another stamps read, copyright coordination, 5 Boulevard Poissonnière. And then I'm told that I have to get in touch to the, with the Lady Daily Mirror if I want to use the photo. Did the French company sell the picture to the Daily Mirror to announce Dunham's tour? After all, Dunham's company did perform in Paris before coming to London. Is the English text, then, an adaptation for the Mirror's English audiences? The leg that put a kick into anthropology does sound like an editor's headline. What was the picture in Dunham's possession? How did it get to the archive? Well, I'm afraid I don't have any answers to all that because I haven't heard yet back from the archivist. And I have had no time to go to Collindale to check the Daily Mirror or to go to Paris for that matter. Suddenly, this one photograph becomes a research project all in itself. And I found it quite interesting what happened when, was, when one is checking a colleague's sources. It is worth noting, too, that the talk about Negro cults that Dunham was giving in London was entitled The State of Cults Among the Deprived. 
given at the REI, as the notes say. And I've been in touch with the REI archivist too, but haven't yet heard either. So I presented part of this seminar at the REI last autumn, not all this bit because I hadn't done the work then, in relation to the recently re-established Ethnomusicology Committee. The, this committee had first been established in the 1950s, early 1950s, and it closed down in the late 1970s, I think. And among the original member of the committee, one finds the name of John Blacking, and, and that committee has just been resurrected uh, a couple of years ago, and I'm a member of it. Considering that Blacking took his degree in anthropology from King's College, Cambridge, in 1953, it means that he was either finishing his degree or had just graduated when he joined the committee. In the recommendation the committee gave to the RAI in 1953 as to what its role should be, one can read that, I cite, the study of dancing should be regarded as within the committee's scope since it is indivisible from the music. Throughout his life, Blacking argued that ethnomusicology and the anthropology of dance were branches of social anthropology. When I met him in 1976, he had just published Dance, Conceptual Thought and the Archaeological Record, an essay that looked at the emergence of dance from an evolutionary perspective, from an evolutionary perspective proposing that it was the ability to move in a sustained, repetitive, rhythmical way that led to the emergence of language. I worked with Blacking from 1976 until he died in 1990 in a variety of capacities, first going to Belfast to do a project with Ugandan dancer Basil Wanzira for my diploma work in Benesh movement notation, then as his assistant doing fieldwork in Venda to collect dance material for him when he was banned from South Africa because of his political position. Then, as a student, first for my MA in ethnomusicology, with the dissertation that discussed the concept of dance style in relation to Venda dances, and for my PhD <coughs> in social anthropology, which focused on Tiwi dance as embodied kinship. Finally, I worked with him as a researcher on a Leverhulme project based at Goldsmiths that looked at intercultural performance. Looking at ethnomusicology and the anthropology of dance and their relation to anthropology, it may be pertinent now to put down a few markers. In 1985, in his introduction to Society and the Dance, the Social Anthropology of Process and Performance, a collection he had edited, Paul Spencer commented, I quote, most of us have encountered some form of dancing in our field studies, often as a highlight of social gathering. It is too big to miss, and yet we still somehow miss it. Similarly, Susan Reed argued in 1998 in the Annual Review of Anthropology, and I quote, it is indeed ironic that despite the considerable, the considerable growth of interest in the anthropology of the body, the study of moving bodies remain in the periphery. It is worth considering that by the mid-70s, there was the beginning of a critical mass of scholars working on dance within anthropology. Adrian Kepler gained a PhD in anthropology from the University of Hawaii in 1967, <coughs> Anya Peterson-Royce from Berkeley in 1974, 
Jude Williams from this very institution, Oxford, in 1975. The same year, Roderick Langer received his in ethnology from the Polish University abroad. In 1976, Joanne Kalihino Moku from Indiana, received her PhD from Indiana, as did, and Susan Youngerman from Columbia. In 1977, Royce published The Anthropology of Dance, and in 79, Hannah published To Dance is Human. In Anthropologie de la Danse, Genèse et Construction d'une Discipline, that Hélène kindly mentioned, um, my colleague Georgiana Gore and I argued that the early 70s could be seen as the beginning of the anthropology of dance as a distinct subfield. A number of major articles had appeared in established anthropology and ethnomusicology journals. And if we add all the European scholars working within the broad field of folklore and ethnochoreology, there was a critical mass of scholars working in the field. They were publishing and they were sharing their work at conferences. Unlike music, that by that time had shed comparative musicology and other such early roots and had two broad areas, ethnomusicology that veered more towards the musical and was represented by UCLA and Mantle Hood and the anthropology of music that veered more towards the anthropological and was represented by Indiana and Alan Merriam, dance was more complicated as scholars were taking convoluted path to reach it. Apart from ethnochoreology and the anthropology of dance, there were also dance ethnology and semasiology, for example. In the book, Georgina and I tried to reconcile these different views and argued for an approach that incorporated both movement and social cultural analysis. Like Bruno Nettle commented in the 1960s about ethnomusicology, I feel that, and I quote him, the diversity of our origins has been more of an asset than a liability. So if the field was somewhat established in the 1970s, why was dance too big to miss and yet missed in 1985? Why were moving bodies still kept at the periphery in 1998? Today I want to go into the very early days of our discipline and look at the time when anthropology was established a time which, with, with, with hindsight, seems more, uh, sorry, seems more open to dance because the boundaries of the discipline were possibly more fluid and the practice of music and dance was part of the social lives of anthropologists. I want to show you how the three fields of anthropology, ethnomusicology and the anthropology of dance, though of course these last two labels only emerge much later, engage with each other and how their relationships developed. I will look primarily at American anthropology and the connection between dance music and anthropology in the first half of the 20th century. Why go to America? I know very well that the term ethnomusicology was coined by the Dutch, Jaap Kunst, that the English Alexander Ellis presented a paper on the musical scales of various nations at a meeting in London in 1885, arguing that, I quote, the music scale is not one, not natural, nor even founded necessarily on the law of the constitution of musical sound, but diverse, very artificial, and very capricious. This citation, by the way, 
according to the ethnomusicologist Jonathan Stock, is still prized and even memorized by modern-day ethnomusicologists. I also remember that the Germans, Erich von Hornbostel and Kurt Sachs, devised the most widely used musical instrument classification, that Kurt Sachs wrote the World History of Dance in 1933, that the International Folk Music Council was founded in England in 1947, and that its secretary, Maud Karpelis, was a dance person. I have not forgotten my history of ethnomusicology, and I recognize the European roots of our discipline, but I also recognize that despite this very important early beginning, ethnomusicology was first truly established in the USA, and the same is true of the anthropology of dance. The individuals I'm going to fo focus on today are Franz Boas and his student Melville Heskovitz, pioneers of American anthropology on the one side, and Zora Neale Hurston and Catherine Dunham on the other, both African-American and both anthropology graduates. Look at Boas crouching on the table in this posture. At least it shows that he was reasonably fit uh, to keep it like that. But I was also told that he was into exercise and uh, athleticism, but I have not yet checked that out. Hurston was a student of Boas at Columbia, and Dunham studied anthropology at Chicago with Robert Redfield. But she also went to Heskovitz at Northwestern's for courses in methodology, and he was her advisor for her Caribbean fieldwork. Heskovitz did some teaching stead at Columbia and Howard University between 1925 and 1927, and there engaged with Hurston. The two women did their fieldwork in the Caribbean roughly during the same period, 35 to 36 for Dunham, 36 to 37 for Hurston. And both received scholarships from the Rosenwald Foundation, a foundation established in 1917 for the well-being of mankind and which had a special interest in the education of African Americans. Chicago at the time was a hub for black artists that rivaled the Harlem Renaissance and the Rosenwald Foundation supported key African-American artists in both places. British anthropology also enters the picture. Radcliffe Brown worked at the University of Chicago between 1931 and 1937, and Malinowski was a regular visiting professor at Chicago from 1933 to 1939, and Dunham attended lectures of both. Zora Neale Hurston, is primarily known as an African-American writer who had been part of the Harlem Renaissance. Indeed, when her autobiography, Dust Tracks on the Road, first published in 1942, was republished in 1985, one can read in the introduction that, I quote, Hurston was to get sidetracked into anthropological research in the 1930s, as if anthropology was irrelevant for her development when, as we will hear later, uh, when we listen to an extract of Mules and Men, it is anthropology and its method which will help her find her writer's voice. Hurston was famous during her lifetime, but she died poor and forgotten in 1960. In the early 1970s, the American author, uh, Alice Walker, led a revival, getting Hurston's books reprinted 
And today Hurston is part of the canon of 20th century American writing. African-American and feminist anthropologists have been reclaiming her since the 1990s, arguing that her experimental ethnographies should be seen, I quote, unequivocally within a tradition that has been effaced by masculinist bias in both the theory and the practice of anthropology, end of quote. Despite these champions, however, it is clear that if one looks at key introductory text offers to students these days, Hurston <coughs> has not entered the canon of anthropology, and she was not even mentioned in the major debates around ethnography and the different kinds of ethnographic writing uh, in the 1980s and 1990s. Following her studies at Howard College, she went to Barnard, then Columbia, where she studied anthropology with Franz Boas, doing fieldwork in Harlem and later in Florida, as well as in the Caribbean. Hurston never finished her PhD. The two years fellowship awarded her by the Rosenwald Foundation suddenly became a six-month one, after the officials of the foundation queried her commitment to scholarship, possibly because of her artistic engagement. Charlotte Mason, a wealthy philanthropist interested in black authors, artists, and anthropology, agreed to sponsor her fieldwork in 1928 so that she could continue gathering folklore. Mason paid Hurston a monthly stipend, and in return, Hurston's findings became Mason's property. She later also received funding from the Guggenheim Foundation for her fieldwork in Haiti. As Deborah Gordon put it, Hurston practiced fieldwork without one of the most significant symbols of professionalization, the PhD. And she never had an academic <coughs> career. Last summer, the Cape Holy Museum in Paris had an exhibition to celebrate 80 years since the publication of Negro Anthology in 1934. Its editor was the English-American Nancy Cunard, heiress to the Cunard ship fortune a symbol of the Anglo-Saxon and French avant-garde of the early 20th century. And just have a look at those bracelets. Uh, some of them, it's the, they are in the, the exhibition and the picture um, up there that was in her house. Um, the 800-odd pages book blends popular culture, anthropology, politics, history, art history, music, in the forms of articles, photographs, archival material, extracts from the press, musical scores, eyewitness accounts, and so on. According to Sarah Friou-Salgas, the curator of the exhibition and chief archivist at the museum, the book is, I quote, a political and cultural history of its time, and it illustrates the international and transcultural Black Atlantic discussed by Paul Gilroy. There were some 150 contributors to the anthology, many uh, people with links to the Communist Party or to communist sympathizing organization. They included W.E.B. Uh, du Bois, Louis Armstrong, Langston Hughes, as well as people such as Jomo Kenyatta and Edwin Tobo Mofutsanyana, one of the founding members of the ANC in South Africa. Hurston was one of the contributors. In our essay, The Characteristic of Negro Expression, 
Hurston discusses what she refers to as the highly dramatized life of African American, where everything is acted out and no little moment passes unadorned. I will read a short extract from the essay to show the liveliness of her style. Who has not observed a robust young Negro chap posing upon a street corner, possessed of nothing but his clothing, his strength and his youth? Does he bear himself like a pauper? No. Louis XIV could be no more insolent in his assurance. His eyes say plainly, Female, halt. His posture exults. Ah, female, I am the eternal male, the giver of life. Behold of my hot flesh all the delights of this world. Salute me, I am strength. All this with a languid posture. There is no mistaking his meaning. A Negro girl strolls past the corner lounger, her whole body panging and posing a slight shoulder movement that calls attention to her bust that is all of a dare, a hippie undulation below the waist that is a sheaf of promises tied with conscious power. She's acting out, I'm a darn sweet woman, and you know it. These little plays by strolling players are acting out daily in a thousand streets in a thousand cities, and no one ever mistakes the meaning. This could be 2015 Brixton, where I live, except that today the young man would probably be arrested for loitering. Hurston, by that time, had published more orthodox academic pieces in the Journal of American Folklore in the 1920s, substantial articles which often included music transcriptions. But by the 1930s, she was writing more experimental ethnographies, such as Mule and Men in 1935, or Tell My Horse in 1938, where she switches back and forth between the language of the written word and the folk speech of her informants. In her language depiction, she tried to recover storytelling techniques using what later scholars would label speakerly text. Um, It is worth noting that when Mules and Men was negatively reviewed in folklore in 1936, Herskovitz flew to the rescue to support Hurston, finding her collection admirable. He wrote that it was unfortunate that the reviewer accepted so, accept so uncritically one of the most current fallacies concerning Negro folklore, and that just because the tales told by Miss Hurston's informant are called big old lies, this emphatically does not mean that these tellers of stories prefer to be regarded as professional liars. To term this creative artist who draw on their imagination, liars, is an egregious reading of European meaning into the use of a term sanctioned by long traditional usage in Africa itself as well as in the New World. Of special interest for someone interested in the anthropology of dance and music are the plays, reviews and musicals that Hurston created. For instance, in 1925, she created Meet the Mama, described in the Library of Congress website as a high-spirited early experimental play. Act 1 takes place in a Harlem club. Act 2, aboard an ocean liner. 
and Act 3 in the jungle of Africa. The play spoofs the Back to Africa movement of Marcus Garvey. Many of her plays remained unpublished, unperformed, or when performed they received little financial support. In 1932, however, The Great Day, a programme of original Negro folklore, was performed at the John Golden Theatre on Broadway to great acclaim. The play drew directly from her fieldwork and dramatised a work day at a Florida road camp. According to Hurston's biographer, Deborah Plant, it included work songs, a sermon delivered by an itinerant preacher, spirituals and children's game, and ended with a fire dance. Jean Lee Cole, who edited and published uh, Hurston's play in 2008, considered that The Great Day was not strictly a theatrical work, but a performance, a concert, dominated by song and dances, interspersed with dramatic monologues and skits, and loosely threaded together with commentary by a sort of master of ceremonies. In the programme, one can read, Great Day is a stage arrangement of part of a cycle of Negro folk song, dance and pantomime, collected and recorded by Miss Zora Hurston over three years of intimate living among the common folk. It is thus a rare sample of the pure and unvarnished materials from which the stage and concert tradition has been derived and ought to show how much more unique and powerful and spirit-compelling the genuine Negro folk things really are. That this legacy has not been irrevocably lost or completely overlaid is good news of the highest spiritual and practical importance for all who wish to know and understand the true elements of the Negro heart and soul. The show had good reviews and it was very influential in the development of the burgeoning modern dance scene as well as African-American dance and African-American derived music. As Hurston put it in her autobiography, In 1932, after trying vainly to interest others, I introduced Bahamans songs and dances to a New York audience, and both the songs and the dances took on. Since then, there has been a sharp trend towards genuine Negro material. The dances aroused a tremendous interest in Negro dancing. The dramatized presentation of Negro work songs in the same concert aroused interest in them, and they have been exploited by singers ever since ever since. I had no intention of making concerts my field. I wanted to show the wealth and beauty of the material to those who were in the field, and therefore I felt that my job was well done when it took on. The show, however, was a financial flop. Hurston had borrowed money from Mason, and Mason did not want to bail her out, as she did not like Hurston using her data in this way. She always tried to stop her doing this kind of work, but to no avail. Hurston is also linked to early American ethnomusicology. A young Alan Lomax, 18 or 19 at the time, asked asked her to join her in one of her field trips. She referred to him as Little Boss Lomax in a letter to his father John in January 1935. In another letter following the field trip, she wrote, I deserve no thanks if I have been helpful to Alan in any way. He's such a lovely person that anybody would want to do all that they could to please him, 
he will go a long way. And towards the end of the letter, she wrote, I have resolved to bring Alan to the notice of Dr. Boas. He told me that Boas was very cold to him when he went to see him, but I shall introduce him in a way to catch the eye of Boas. It is also during this field trip that she advised Lomax and Elizabeth Barnacle, another folklorist, to darken their faces and hands to avert potential trouble with white policemen enforcing the Jim Crow uh, laws. Lomax was nevertheless arrested. John Swed, the author of Alan Lomax, The Man Who Recorded the World, commented in an interview that Lomax retelling this story could say, now a black person gets a white person out of jail. Hurston is an interesting character. Anthropologist Gwendolyn Mickle commented that, I quote, in reading her ethnographies, one must remember that she was the contradictory product of the class and race conscious America of the 1930s. Indeed, the story about Lomax demonstrates that in their relationships, all the social rules of the American South were broken. Hurston was feisty and managed to alienate a lot of people in her life, both black and white. Some of her African-American contemporaries accused her of being right-wing and later of writing her autobiography for a white audience. As we saw earlier, she did not have much positive to say about the Return to Africa movement, and although she is seen today as a very important figure of the Harlem Renaissance, she herself referred to it as the so-called Negro Renaissance, and only mentions it, it in passing in her autobiography. Hurston refused to look at the past. As she put it, while I have a handkerchief over my eyes, crying over the landing of the first slaves in 1619, I might miss something swell that is going on in 1942. In a letter to the poet County Cullen in 1943, she wrote, I have the nerve to walk my own way, however hard, in my search for reality, rather than climb upon the rattling wagon of wishful illusions. I mean to live and die by my own mind. And she did. Catherine Dunham, in contrast to Hurston, did not fall into uh, obscurity, but instead became a famous dancer, established a technique named after her, had a dedicated museum, and received some 18 honorary doctorates during her career. Yet, as with Hurston, it is her artistic legacy that is widely known and celebrated, rather than her scholarly anthropological work. She first trained in classical ballet with Ludmila Speranceva, who was one of the rare ballet teachers to accept black students. She later started a short-lived company, Ballet Neg, but she was interested in finding out more and researching the origins of popular dances, such as the cakewalk, the lindy hop, and the black bottom. After attending a public lecture given by Redfield, she felt that she had discovered the roots of American culture, African-American culture and she decided to study anthropology at the University of Chicago. Her brother was also studying philosophy at Chicago. But she continued with her dancing, performing in Chicago opera productions 
as well as performing with her own group at the Chicago World Fair of 1934. Like Hurston, Dunham never finished her postgraduate studies. In 1939, she decided not to finish her master's, but to go to New York instead and focus on her dance career. This does not mean, however, that she was abandoning anthropology and she continued to do field work to get material to feed her artistic work. Her Caribbean trip included a stay in a village of Maroon in Jamaica. She later wrote Journey to Akompong in 1946 based on that experience. Hurston reviewed the book, starting her text with Catherine Dunham's journey to Akompong is a lively and word-deft account of a 30-day visit to Akompong, the maroon settlement high in the mountain of Jamaica, British West Indies. She noted, too, that Catherine Dunham is a famous dancer and choreographer. Most of her dance compositions are founded on the folk dances of the Antilles. The material for them she gathered on two Rosenwald fellowships under Dr. Melville Heskovitz of Northwestern University. What a wonderfully catty description, all very polite, but Dunham is put in her place. Hurston doesn't see her as an equal scholar. Hurston had done long-term fieldwork. Remember the, the three years uh, mentioned earlier uh, in relation to the show. And I imagine the two Rosenwald Foundation scholarships must have grated, considering that hers had been reduced. It is interesting to note, too, that it seems that the Rosenwald grant had been given for dance, not for anthropology, for artistic, not for academic pursuit. In 1941, Dunham was invited to lecture to the Anthropology Club at the Yale Anthropology Graduate School. Her topic was, quote, the practical application of primitive material to the theatre, demonstrating her discourse with the aid of ten dancers. The following year, giving another lecture demonstration at UCLA in 1942, the Dunham, uh, Dunham described her early training. It is worth noting here that the lecture demonstration as a way of presenting material was not common at the time. Indeed, in the edited collection mentioned earlier, it is argued that Dunham invented the format and that in her early experiment, Melville Heskovitz used to play for her. In her UCLA lecture, she commented, social anthropology offered the best solution for joining my wish to be an anthropologist and the great physical urge to be a dancer. I must say that through this rather hectic experimental period, I found only the greatest sympathy in the attitude of my professors towards what I was trying to do. Now and then I was forced to become a little suspicious at some of them assuring me, after some concert or other, that I should concentrate only on the dance. But on the whole, it was through such general interpretations as these of Redfield, Radcliffe Brown, Malinowski, Heskovitz and others, that I was able to arrive at the same translation of classroom and field materials in terms of the theatre. During one of my more serious periods at the University of Chicago, it occurred to me that the dance as a specific and extremely important social trait had received relatively small consideration from anthropologists. It occurred to me also that someone who could actively participate in this activity 
would be able to arrive much more clearly at the function of the dance in a specific community than the field worker who depended primarily on observation. Dr. Redfield stressed the essential unity of activity, the cohesiveness of all elements in a simple society. This would mean that the dance would be related to other traits in that society. Dr. Heskovitz gave me more than adequate background for my West Indian research, both through African material and through his own West Indian material. Radcliffe Brown lectured in terms of function, so that I was always reminded to look for the purpose and the use of whatever I saw, as well as the form. As for Dr. Malinowski, I shall always be grateful to him for giving me my first lesson in the Begin just a few days because I left for my field trip. The Begin, a rumba-like dance from the folklore of Martinique, had found its way to the ballroom. It had been made especially famous by Begin the Begin, a song written by Cole Porter on a Cunard's cruise ship, and introduced in a Broadway musical the same year, 1935. The song has been performed by many, including Frank Sinatra and Ella Fitzgerald, and been danced by Eleanor Powell and Fred Astaire. To conclude, what is interesting in these two pioneers is that first and foremost their work is rooted in fieldwork, in participating observation, and in using practice as a way of knowing. In this way, unlike anthropology and ethnomusicology, which started with armchair scholars, the field of the anthropology of dance started with practitioners deeply implicated in the dance. Herson is a practitioner of the genre she studied, and we have recording not of her dancing, but of her singing, um, because on the whole she was on home ground. She was doing fieldwork at home. Dunham, in contrast, is a trained dancer, trained in high art dance, and becoming interested in popular culture. She does not do fieldwork in the US, but focuses on the Caribbean, unlike Hurston, who did both. Kate Ramsey, an anthropologist who has written on the development of dance anthropology, reported that in 1953, Heskovitz, and it's quite interesting, 53, the same time as uh, the anthropologist in London were questioning. Um, so in 1953, Heskovitz wrote to the dean of Northwestern, it is a much neglected field and one that I feel can only be established by someone thoroughly trained in the dance who would then get enough anthropological training to work out methods and conceptual approaches for this cross-cultural study. Indeed, I recall John Blacking commenting that it was easier to train a dancer in anthropology than to make a dancer out of an anthropologist because at this time, uh, social dance is not part of the normal everyday life of anthropologists like we had you know, with Malinowski. Um, Hurston did urban anthropology and anthropology at home in the 1920s, and she developed new ethnographic writing in the 1930s. Dunham had a slightly different approach, and she was very much interested in intercultural communication through dance, and her project was more of a humanist one. But both were interested in issues of representation, or rather of issues of misrepresentation, of African-Americans and totally committed to the artistic work but also to anthropology. Neither of them, however, articulated theories of, around what they were doing. 
And this may have been difficult for their contemporaries and for later anthropologists to place them within anthropology. But why not within the anthropology of dance? None of the scholars men- mentioned earlier, Royce, Hannah, Kelly, Nomoku, Williams, made any reference to either of them in their writing at the time, you know, in the 60s, 70s. In 1986, however, Royce wrote the successful nomination for Catherine Dunham for the Distinguished Service Award from the American Anthropological Association. And in 1991, she wrote an entry on her for the International Dictionary of Anthropologists. Royce also told me that in 1991, she was the discussant at a AAA panel chaired by Yvonne Daniels about the work of Dunham, as well as Pearl Primer, so another uh, anthropologist, African-American anthropologist and dancer. In the second edition of the Anthropology of Dance, which was published in 2002, Royce added a new introductory chapter, From Body as Artifact to Embodied Knowledge, where she tried to situate the lack of attention to the work of Dunham. For her, it is the persistent dichotomy between practice and reflection, the academy always privileging the latter, which is at the basis of the lack of recognition of the dancer anthropologist. As far as I'm aware, Royce is the only scholar who has corrected her earlier approach but I plan at some stage to interview my other colleagues. One could argue that Hurston had disappeared from the radar when the field of the anthropology of dance emerged in the 1960s with Gertrude Kura's article, and it is only recently that scholar became aware of her contribution, so I think I'm not, it's not too surprising that she's not mentioned. The situation, however, is different with Dunham, Kelly Onomoku directly followed in her footstep at Northwestern, studying with Herskovitz first in the 1940s. Indeed, she later did what Herskovitz was doing for his own work in music and other aspects of culture, looking at remnants of African traits in African-American culture, and what he had always hoped his dance students would do. The heart of Kelly Onomoku's MA dissertation was a comparison between African and African-American motor behaviours with those of European performers. So why doesn't she talk about her, about Dunham? Today, ethnomusicology is primarily taught in music programme, and the same is true for the anthropology of dance, which is taught in dance programmes, but certainly not to the scale of the way ethnomusicology is. Preparing for this seminar... I went back to the classics and I remembered Mantle Hood's amusing remarks in 1971. Some anthropologists believe that musicology is the science of counting notes. Some musicologists believe that anthropology is the science of ferreting out who sleeps with whom and in what kind of houses. Ignoring such stereotypes, let us try to make clear that the ethnomusicologist is neither an anthropologist nor a musicologist, nor, in my belief, a combination of the two. Trained by blacking, I have always considered myself an anthropologist and my discipline as a subfield of anthropology. Yet, whilst anthropology departments seem to accept more doctoral students doing research in dance than in my time, they do not seem to offer courses in the anthropology of dance or the anthropology of music, though they may cross-list courses on world music or such like with the music department. 
but they maybe have a course on the anthropology of art. So what we have is a replication of the typical hierarchical organization of the arts in Western society. The visual art at the top and the bodily at the bottom. Will this hegemony ever stop and will anthropologists engage more fully with dance and with the anthropology of dance scholarship? Thank you.